Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 11th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Dublin could be brought to a standstill with truckers and hauliers meeting on motorways overnight before heading into the city centre this morning. A pedestrian march is due to get underway on O'Connell Street right now and organisers say this is not a one-day demonstration. Instead, they say it'll be a long, drawn-out process and will go on until their demands are met. Farmers, bus companies, taxis and the general public are asked to join the hauliers complaining about the price of fuel. The group, the People of Ireland Against Fuel Prices, say it is not just the price of fuel, though, that's driving this protest with them saying we are all in crisis because the cost of living is not affordable. Nobody disagrees with that. And today, the Ministers for Finance and Public expenditure, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath will meet with the leaders of the three coalition parties. Michal Martin, Leo Radker and Eamon Ryan will hope that meeting will result in coming up with ways for the government to help people to cope with the cost of living. Let's speak to the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and East Meath. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. There is uh, this uh, problem that we're all facing, all in crisis, if you like, as uh, that group puts it. But before we talk about the general increase in uh, the cost of living, what do you make of uh, this protest? And do you support the truckers' right to protest in the manner that they are protesting? Well, I I obviously naturally support people's right to uh, protest, but the level of disruption uh, been experienced already in Dublin city centre for uh, ordinary workers going about their business for people who have to go to medical appointments is frankly uh, very difficult uh, to accept. Um, we deal every day, of course, with protests. And I've been on more protests than most people have had hot dinners and people have democratic right to uh, protest. But the, the level of disruption in Dublin, as I understand it, uh, and I'll be heading there myself shortly, uh, is kind of difficult to comprehend. This group, uh, I'm not sure who organised this group, uh, is a, uh, an organised group. Um, is it similar to the protests that we experienced a number of months ago when there were a number of TDs who were from rural areas in the south of the country who were actually involved in that demonstration? I'm, I'm not sure uh, that needs to be established, but this could have been handled much better. Uh, if they're trying to convince people that they have an argument there's uh, a, a, you know, a legitimate and valid position, then there are better and different ways of doing this. Okay, it could go on for days. So they say, uh, let's see, um, I don't want to predict what's going to happen mm. uh, with that. Um, and as I say, if they're trying to persuade people of the merits of their argument, uh, I think they've lost the audience already. OK, will uh, they achieve their aims? Is it possible to bring down the price of petrol and diesel for that matter? Well, they seem to be um, particularly concerned about the price uh, of transport, the price of diesel. And I can 
understand that. I'm not as sure that they're as concerned as I am or most other people about the impact more broadly that inflation and the rising cost of living is having on people's pay packets and the euro in, in their pockets. I mean, this is particularly hitting people who are on low and middle incomes. I mean, the central bank said to me in the uh, Iraqis Finance Committee two weeks ago, this is having an uneven impact. I mean, if you're well off and if you're doing well, uh, you're hardly noticing the difference. But if you're on a low and fixed income, if you're depending on social welfare, if you're a pensioner, uh, it's particularly uh, impacting on pensioners on fixed incomes, um, who don't, by the way, uh, all of them do not have the fuel allowance. Only one third of pensioners might have have the fuel allowance. And if you're a rural dweller as well, uh, it's 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 having a particular impact. And my problem has been way back since last September, uh, Michael, in advance of the October uh, budget uh, that provided the finance bill and the social welfare legislation for this year, those small rises. I've been saying all along that what we needed was inflation busting social welfare increases. We could anticipate that there was going to be um, a, a rise in the cost of living because of su- supply chain issues uh, as uh, the uh, COVID-19 measures will unravel on unfo- over the last few months. We anticipated that. Uh, we weren't government at the time. They only increased social welfare by, by about 2% and not every rate uh, at that. Uh, the fuel allowance was not extended to 150,000 additional households that I've been arguing for. Arguing for The minimum wage only rose by 30 cent. Uh, and instead of uh, accepting the proposal that I introduced for what we call a carbon credit uh, for households under 50,000 euro, that will be worth a few hundred euros each year. Uh, they decided just to, to park that entirely. And now we're in a situation where government are again looking at mitigating measures for the ever-rising cost in fuel and the ever-rising mm. cost of living that's really, really hitting people uh, in the pocket. And this is not transitory in the way that they said it would. Now, nobody could have anticipated the outbreak of uh, war in, in Ukraine. We knew we were going to have an inflation problem uh, as the COVID restrictions uh, unwound. But this is with us now for the next year or two. Who knows what's going to happen in Ukraine? That should, of course, be our first um, concern. Uh, but uh, there, there, there are downstream impacts in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. We know what they are. The people of Ireland are living with them. The people, mm. people across the world are living with them. Food prices now as well going up 5 6% on the basics, uh, bread, uh, pasta and so on. The mm. basics that people mm. need to sort of stretch through the week, particularly if you're on a fixed income. The problem is uh, there's a perfect storm, isn't there, uh, when you add one crisis on top of another and put it all together and still feel uncertain about what's going to happen next. Uh, it's very difficult to control contend with it is and and michael i I don't um, expect government to be able to wave a magic wand of any description there are lots of moving parts here um many of the um reasons for the increased fuel price uh, in food price in 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 other uh, elements of the economy are entirely beyond this government or any other government's control all i'm asking them to do and this is what i asked Mm. them to do in early february when i brought an extensive motion to the doll which in, in effect was calling for a mini budget uh, to the tune of 1.4 billion euro to help mitigate the worst kind of excesses of this for low and middle income families all we're asking them to do is use the levers they have at their own disposal do the things that they have under their control what do i mean by that i mean um cut that um for example on 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 petrol and diesel but uh, will that not result in it going back up to 23 percent rather than 13 percent where it's at at the moment and make we've it had this discussion and yeah. make it more expensive we've had this ultimately you would run the risk of doing that but here's how that that's addressed um for months now we've been calling on the government to go to the european union to seek what's known as a derogation mm. um 
against the VAT directive. If you if you did decide that you were going to drop the VAT rate, mm. there would be a risk that it would go back up to the high rate of 23%. Having said that, the Taoiseach announced uh, with some fanfare three, four weeks ago that he had uh, secured a derogation from the European Commission to be able to reduce VAT for a temporary period uh, and then it would ensure that it wouldn't go back up to 23% when these measures uh, expired. I asked the Minister for Finance at the Europtus Finance Committee last Wednesday uh, where it stands that particular commitment. He could not give me a, uh, I won't say a straight answer. Uh, he is a straight and honourable person. Mm-hmm. He may disagree politically, but he couldn't give me a definitive answer as to when that would happen. He told me he had raised this again mm. at the meeting of European uh, finance ministers, but there was no clear trajectory. Even though the Taoiseach himself has talked about mm. introducing mitigating measures for, for example, yeah. when the well, carbon tax increase comes in in May on, on home home heating. Well, it, it's but odd. there's no sign of it. it it's no odd because it. every country in Europe is facing the same kind of problems and it could result in the far right uh, taking the French presidency, it seems, uh, because that's uh, the uh, what the campaign is being won and lost on it, it would appear from all accounts. But the price of energy uh, is undoubtedly driving price increases across the board, whether that's bread or pasta or whatever. Uh, And some people are finding it next to impossible to cope and having to make very tough decisions, as we've been hearing, whether to heat or eat, as the case may be. It's a dreadful time to think about losing your job. And that's the prospect that some 94 people in the Drogheda area are facing uh, with Premier Perry Glaze running up debts of almost three and a half million euro. But related to this global price increase is how they use natural gas, which is making it pretty difficult for them to continue. And there's an investor talking about taking over Premier Perry Glaze uh, and switching to renewable sources. But that could result in 94 people losing their jobs for at least 18 months. Well, that's right, or, or, or potentially losing their jobs um, permanently and having to find employment elsewhere, if, the, if that's possible. Um, I've been dealing and, 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 and representing uh, as, as a local TD uh, the workers in Premier Pericles for a, a, long, a long number of years. Um, and uh, obviously the industrial relations situation at the plant has been particularly difficult over the last couple of years. You will recall, Michael, uh, a very difficult dispute uh, in the summer and into the early uh, autumn of 2020. So there's been a, a, a series of, of issues at the plant over the last uh, period of time. Which could um, be behind some current, of those deaths that the company has run up as well. Uh, I, well, the, 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 let's be clear about this now. I mean, the, the, the organisation was in good footing. Um, um, the reality is uh, that, um, and they made no bones about it, company management, that... Um, Towards the end of last year, um, the rising impact of energy really started to bite uh, with the company. There were outstanding bills with Board Gosh and Energy, very significant bills, uh, which, um, if left untended, could uh, have tipped the company over the edge. And they got the protection of the courts as were through the examinership process towards the uh, end of last year. And uh, there was a court hearing again uh, last Friday, and the court with no objection uh, to creditors like Board Gosh and, and the Revenue Commissioners, uh, the court had decided to give them a, an additional period of time or the examiner an additional period of time to find an investor to um, rescue, as it were, uh, the organisation from insolvency and liquidation. But the difficulty I have is that all kinds of assumptions seem to be made by the examiner 
uh, and indeed uh, by the court, without any, without any real interrogation, it seems to me, uh, about the, the status of the workers. The workers should come first in this. Um, I don't think they've been treated with the dignity and the respect uh, that they deserve. Uh, in my view, they've been uh, kept in the dark, notwithstanding the best efforts of uh, their uh, trade union uh, officials. Um to try to you know navigate uh, the way through this process, there are uh, it seems the, st- the stark reality is facing us that there are potentially um, eighty plus jobs at risk uh, in the plant. Um, and do you believe the jobs are gone or very close to it? Uh, I, I'm never going to comment uh, on okay. the status yeah. of someone's job. There is always a prospect uh, that jobs can be rescued. My okay. difficulty here, Michael, is that the examiner. It seems to be painting this as a fate complete okay. uh, that jobs will be lost. And <coughs> every effort should be you're, made. You're to, very to, concerned, anyway, as I'm sure. I'm very concerned, and, are, and of I, course, yeah. mm-hmm. and they, they yeah. actually are. I've spoken mm-hmm. to some of the yeah. workers mm-hmm. over the course of last week, and some of the trade union officials um, who uh, are involved. Uh, and uh, my message to the examiner and to the courts, and they don't have to interrogate this process and should not take at face value everything that the examiner mm. uh, and the organisation says. Uh, every effort needs to be made to save as many jobs as possible. Um, the idea that uh, a company would be closed down and would then be resurrected, Phoenix, like from the flames uh, in, in 18 months uh, with a, uh, with new staff uh, is kind of unconscionable in many ways. Mm. Um, but a, a know, new that, system of operation. Kind of practice. A, a new system of, kind of operation. We should be encouraging. Yeah. Uh, that well, well, sorry. Just to explain what you're saying, there are, are you saying that if that's what they do, if they close the factory down to change to natural resources rather than uh, natural gas, that uh, they should be obligated to rehire the people who they let go? Uh, ideally, and if that's the case, that if people are let go, then uh, there should be uh, some kind of a formal recognition of their connection with the organisation. That's a matter then to be negotiated, mm. uh, and it is. It's, a, it's a complicated way, situation because they'll be looking for redundancy as well, of course. Like you know. Well, well, it, it, it is it is laudable that the organisation or the investor that appears to be interested um, in, in in looking at taking on Premier Pericles wants to switch from natural gas to renewables. That should be encouraged. But the whole idea, Michael, of what we call the just transition, mm. a lot of lip service is paid to that. Um, and in, in, in situations like this, workers unfortunately come way down the list of priorities mm. for uh, organisations. It is, it is a very, very difficult uh, situation. We don't know how it's going to pan out over the next few weeks. Yep. But the problem I have, Michael, and I understand the complexities of all of this, um, this is a long, long road. Uh, and of course, workers would be looking for it. Workers could not be expected to simply sit back and wait for their plants to reopen uh, without any compensation, without mm. any support from, from the employer. Um, but this idea of the just transition should involve bringing workers with you, uh, not simply deciding to um, mothball a plant and then decide 18 months later, having done the work that you said you would do, and that's laudable, don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, you should be moving mm-hmm. from natural gas and fossil fuels Fuel dependency. Well, to, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Th- I'm sure the price is driving that decision apart from anything else. But yeah, we'll be watching that uh, obviously over the coming days. Uh, just a, a couple of other issues uh, before we finish up our conversation this morning, if uh, I can. I want to ask you about uh, Dr. Tony Hula in, in a moment. Uh, but it, it looks as though uh, there's nowhere for Ukrainian refugees to be housed at this stage. Uh, we've run out of space. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Okay, um, th- there's a number of different things that, that, that can be done. Uh, I've said on the programme uh, at the early stages of this conflict and when it became, um, I think, the reality that we would be hosting a significant number of uh, Ukrainian refugees flee- fleeing conflict and fleeing danger, that um, one of the solutions that ought to be examined is the creation of 
um, modern, uh, contemporary, um, high standard, prefabricated solutions on sites owned by the state and local authorities across the country to accommodate in a dignified way mm. uh, those who would be fleeing conflict. Can that be done Ukraine. by the weekend, though? It certainly can't be done by the weekend. And that's the um, point, isn't it? And I understand that the Minister for Housing is meeting with um, property sector interests and construction interests today uh, to scope out what can be done. Um, but a solution needs to be turned around very, very quickly. And one actually way, Michael, of, of, of helping the supply uh, of um, rooms is to make sure that the pledges that were made by people to the Red Cross are turned over, turned around mm. more quickly than has been the case. But also as well, um, but they're, they're turning houses down. They're turning houses down if, if they don't have two toilets. Apparently, okay, well, I'm not sure of the details of that. But yeah, well, that was, uh, there's, there's, there's 16 criteria. Was. I think it was reported in the Irish Times uh, last uh, Friday. Uh, Peter McVerry was on the program with us and seemed quite shocked at the idea that you'd ask people to sleep in warehouses rather than uh, take up a, an offer of a house that didn't and have no, two toilets. There is no dignity in, in, in sleeping, as you say, in a warehouse or mm. in a camp bed in, a, in, a, in an army barracks. But there is one way that we can actually ensure that there is a greater supply uh, of accommodation. Uh, and in good accommodation at that. Um, in, in recent weeks, I've been contacted by some local authority tenants in the Drada area who told me that uh, they were preparing to take in refugees from Ukraine and were told by the local authority that they could not do so um, because that was in breach of their tenancy uh, agreement. I raised this last week with the mm. Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, and now the, the Department of Housing is writing to local authorities uh, to... Um, uh, ensure that local authority tenants, uh, once criteria are met, uh, can be and will be in a mm. position to accommodate uh, refugees from Ukraine. It's a ridiculous situation well, and unfair yeah, that a local I mean, authority they've, tenant they've is, been at, they, you know, they're up they rent. asked in February to come up uh, with possibilities and so far they've come up with... Uh, uh, housing for 16 people and uh, planning to put another 50 people on the floor in uh, the sports hall in Dundalk, uh, which uh, really does seem uh, lacking, to say the least. We're running out of time quickly. Uh, I think most people would regard Dr Tony Houlihan to have been an exceptional public servant. Uh, he's about to end his public service uh, in controversy uh, and very abruptly. Uh, who's responsible for that, do you think? Um, well, I, I think uh, government are responsible, um, quite frankly, and this wasn't the case. Um, somebody remarked to me yesterday of the opposition calling for <clears throat> somebody's head and um, a, a, a degree of momentum uh, being caused by the opposition uh, asking for government to account for themselves. Government uh, are responsible for this. The Minister for Health, uh, ultimately, uh, under the relevant legislation, is responsible for decisions made uh, in his department. It's clear to me, uh, or at least it seems from the media reportage, Michael, that the <clears throat> Minister for Health himself at least claims that he wasn't informed uh, about the nature of this process, which begs questions, I think, in the Department of Health and across government about the, frankly, about the respect in which the Minister for Health, or lack thereof, uh, the, 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 the lack of respect for the Minister for Health. Um, this is a very peculiar situation, and ultimately, because of the ham-fisted way in which this uh, was, was organised with very, very limited transparency, and I say that diplomatically. Uh, Ireland has lost a, an outstanding um, public uh, official, somebody who spent a lifetime in public service, who now, it seems, will be going off, uh, if the indications are correct, to work in the private sector and not in the public sector, where he could have still continued to play a very important role in forming the evolution of public health policy from an academic perspective um, in this country. Um, very, very valuable public service gone because uh, ministers and government more generally have decided not to do things correctly. 
Okay, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, that's uh, Labour TD for Louth and East Meath and uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, go uh, to Neil MacDonald, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Good morning to you, Neil, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. This protest uh, doesn't seem to be causing the mayhem and the disruption that was expected, but it's probably early days yet, and uh, the presence of uh, people protesting against fuel prices may be felt in the city, making it difficult, undoubtedly, to do business. What do you make of it? Well, uh, good morning, Michael. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've been here before. There were two of these <clears throat> protests previously last year. Um, it, it's it's a very strange protest because, you know, it doesn't appear to be fronted by anyone. It's it's uh, There are no spokespeople elected um, uh, and they don't appear to be following the traditional uh, sort of protest route of, go- of going to uh, Leinster House uh, and, uh, you know, I, I understand the doll isn't sitting, so, you know, there may be a good reason for not doing yeah. that. Um, but it, it does cause really significant disruption to an awful lot of businesses that, you know, have have not had, uh, are, are only just coming out of the pandemic. I appreciate what you've just said, that it doesn't appear to be too disruptive at the moment. But from the point of view of, of, of people in, in Louth and Mead, yeah. the focus does appear to be on uh, Dublin Port Tunnel and the East Link, yeah. and, and that traditionally affects the M1 very badly. So yeah. even a relatively minor protest is likely to have, have negative effects up the M1. Yeah. And the East Link is blocked at both ends, isn't it? Uh, which uh, makes it impossible to take that route. Uh, but perhaps uh, the disruption hasn't been as bad as people feared because I think the streets would otherwise be pretty empty today because it is Easter week and uh, the schools are closed. Yes, uh, and thank God for small mercies. You know, uh, it doesn't appear to be affecting work as badly as it could, and we're 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 delighted that that's the case. It it is perhaps a sign um, that it doesn't have the level of support that the organisers were expecting, and we we are glad to note, for example, that the, the main trade associations um, for the for the trucking business, the IRHA and the FTAI. Uh, are, are on record as not supporting this pro- protest. So yeah. it does appear to have minority support even within the trucking community. Yeah, well, I mean, the point is one that we all agree with. Fuel is far too expensive. We're all very concerned about it and we'd all like something to be done. And that includes uh, the businesses uh, who are already suffering because of the price of fuel and everything else for that matter. And uh, this is just adding to the challenges uh, that people are facing. It, it does, of course, um, and I think people have a natural sympathy. We would all like to think uh, that we can have cheaper fuel prices in the in the same way as we have seen um, our, our food prices and the and the prices of our services go up very substantially. You know, people have had uh, effectively two decades or more now without. Uh, real price inflation. The only thing people, the, the only day-to-day expense that people have looked, uh, have seen increasing over the last 20 years or more is, is the cost of, of housing and rent. So this is very hard for people to adjust to. Uh, so it's perfectly understandable. But, you know, the idea that people are, and we, we see some of their demands on Facebook that petrol is going to be capped at uh, a euro and ten a litre and diesel at a euro and twenty. 
uh, and similar taps oh. on on green diesel and home heating diesel. I mean, it's it's been more than a decade since fuel was at that price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we have to be realistic about what is achievable. A when we're going through a period of very substantial inflation and, and B, when there's a really serious war in Eastern Europe. Okay, maybe it's not a, as bad as it might have been or people feared, uh, but that uh, won't come as any consolation to people who are disrupted by this uh, this morning. Maybe people have, have decided not to travel uh, because uh, of uh, the feared disruption, uh, but there is talk that this could go on for days. Uh, what would you say to the organisers? <coughs> well, yeah, well, we, you're you're right to say that the the organisers, such as they are, and and you know there are no named individuals, and this is being organised anonymously on Facebook. Uh, people are saying that they're going to do this for a week, and they're you know they're not moving until petrol is capped at euro ten and diesel is capped at euro twenty. What we would say is, look, you know, as we said in December, uh, you know, please respect. Uh, the right that you enjoy to protest. Don't block hospitals or emergency services. Um, if, if you're going to be in town disrupting trade for a week, at least give some of your custom, you know, go into the cafes and, and the shops and restaurants and, and, and feed yourselves there and, you know, give some custom to the people that you're taking custom away from. At least support them when you're, when you're taking business away from them. They're, they're suffering just as you're suffering uh, because of this. So, so please have consideration for others. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, Neil. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Now, uh, the Pope uh, did, as he always does, or generally always does, if he's in Rome, uh, said to the Angelus uh, at six o'clock yesterday in the Vatican to thousands of people. Uh, And you might like to hear a a little bit of what Pope Francis had to say. Dear brothers and sisters, before we conclude, I would like to greet all of you, especially those who have come pilgrims from different uh, countries, among which are many young people, and also I greet all of you who are following us on TV and radio and social media. I'm also offering my closeness to the people of Peru who are undergoing political challenges and I encourage them all to find a peaceful solution for the good of the country, especially for the poor, and to respect the rights of everyone and of all institutions. The Pope very concerned uh, about what's happening in Peru, where, ironically uh, enough, if you like, uh, there's huge protests taking place about the cost of living and fuel, and they've resulted in riots. And as I say, there's a lot of concern about the situation there and indeed about comments uh, from the Prime Minister, uh, which he's apologised for after saying... Uh, what was interpreted to be admiration for Adolf Hitler. Anyway, the Pope uh, concerned about what's happening in Peru. You also heard him welcome people from Ukraine to the Vatican and of course uh, the Pope very concerned about what's happening there too. Nothing is impossible with God. Even where there are wars our Lord even when these wars show us all these atrocities which are against civilians. Let us pray about this.
Siamo nei giorni che precedono la Pasqua. We are in the day of the Holy Week. And we prepare to celebrate the victory of Jesus over sin and death. Over sin and death and not against something or against someone. Today there is war because we always want to win. Così si perde soltanto. And when we act like this, we lose. Lui, Why don't we allow the Lord to win the Lord who carried the cross for us? È morto la vita, he died la so muore, that life can reign and peace si will prevail. Si Silence the guns. As we start Holy Week, not to silence the guns, only to take them up afterwards, but calling for a peace that is negotiated with some sacrifice for the good of all the people. What kind of victory will it be where you plant a flag among ruins? Nothing is impossible before God. To Him, we intercede through the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah, planting a Russian flag in uh, the ruins of Mariupol or one of uh, these other places of uh, destruction in Ukraine. What's the point, the Pope uh, calling on the Russians uh, to silence the guns? Uh, the translation, by the way, there from Vatican Radio. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's obviously a a lot of concern for people coming to this country from Ukraine, given that there's nowhere left for them uh, to stay. Let's talk about the situation uh, that some of uh, the refugees, specifically the children who are coming to this country, and indeed some of uh, the unaccompanied children who are coming to this country. Uh, Let's uh, speak to Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Tanya, and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Tusla told you last week, I think that 77 children had uh, come to the country unaccompanied. Uh, That's a dreadful situation that they find themselves in. All the refugees are in a dreadful situation, but it must be particularly frightening uh, for children who are on their own. Yeah, I mean, and and it's it's unusual and unexpected in one way because you would expect uh, some of the children who are unaccompanied to be cared for in the countries around the Ukraine, you know, in Poland, uh, Hungary, etc., where there will be Ukrainian speakers. And and to be honest, it's better to be cared for by someone that speaks the same language as you. But what has happened is that some parents have made very difficult decisions to get their children out of Ukraine and they've tried to send them far afield and what I understand from Tucson in some of these cases um, I understand that it's to avoid the conscription that might happen and I suppose the churn of war and what happens to young people and children uh, in, in war so Tucson informed me uh, as of last week and Thursday last week that they had uh, had 77 children referred to them and 28 of those were still in their care so some of those children were unified with family members here actually and that, that can happen commonly that children come after the family member um, but some of them have been placed in, in foster care as well. As things go on, more people are set to arrive and uh, the challenge will become all the greater. Are you concerned about the idea of women and children sleeping in tents and garments in camp? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, if you think about, I suppose, what people have already been through um, in Ukraine, uh, I mean, they've experienced extreme forms of violence now. Their homes have been destroyed. Um, They would have lost family and partners um, and immediate family members as well. And so I suppose on settling in Ireland, they have to be placed in accommodation that is appropriate to their needs. So you can imagine, I mean, I've heard adaptation of warehouses Mm. and things like that. I mean, you could adapt a bigger building congregated setting etc you know you can find temporary forms of accommodation for a week or so but you really if you want to have anyone accommodated somewhere for any length of time it has to be uh, adapted to their needs mm. I, I, I don't think it's a good starting point to have someone in, in appropriate accommodation from, from the get go uh, Well walking around a field perhaps in the middle of the night to find the toilets uh, would make you think uh, that uh, they could be very vulnerable and security might be an idea yeah, well, funny enough, I suppose, in, in where refugees exist around the world, and these are actually the real concerns of women and children that live in those refugee camps. Um, Greece, for example, had an ex, you know a horrendous experience of refugee camps, and, and I had an opportunity to speak to Syrian refugees who had lived through the civil war, had crossed the desert, you know, to get to safety, and they, they told me that the worst experience along the way was actually living in those refugee camps in Greece. Now, we're, we're nowhere near that, but I think what we need is, is a national effort to identify alternative accommodation options that are going to be more suitable for people. And then a speeding up of the pledge system. I mean, a lot of Irish people have done an amazing job. They're, they're pledging to take Ukrainian refugees. Speeding up that process, I think, is going to be uh, very important. And at the same time, we need to make sure that people are safe in, in, the, in those homes as well. I think it's, it's very welcome that two pushed to that any any family taking a child or a family from Ukraine would be vetted and that's really important but saying that a lot of people who could be harmful to children it's unlikely that we have been picked up by the vetting system. It does take a lot of time for people to make complaints about an individual and for the guards to be on the case. So we're going to have to make sure that the Ukrainian families coming to Ireland are well aware that we have an effective child protection and welfare system and if that they feel any way unsafe that they're there to step in uh, and find them somewhere alternative and that they'll deal with the situation at hand. I heard about a group of uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, who are living in a, a community centre over the weekend uh, and nothing bad happened. They were OK. Uh, but the fire alarm uh, was set off accidentally and uh, apparently there was huge anxiety. People terrified, screaming and that sort of thing. Uh, and eventually then people settled down and the fire alarm was put off and so on. Uh, and then later that night, uh, I think as they were sleeping, a helicopter flew overhead and the lights of the helicopter came through the window somehow. And again, there was huge anxiety. And I guess the reason I'm saying that is because I think it goes to show how people are feeling and the trauma that they've been through, which they're bringing with them and the needs that they have as a result of all of that and how vulnerable these people can be, Tanya. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing that's really important for people when they are fleeing this kind of violence and war is a sanctuary, you know, a, a safe place uh, for them and their, and their children. And 
often they won't even even be in a position to deal with the emotional trauma that they've just gone through. It's really about making sure there's a safe bed. They know that there's a school where their child can go to school. Um, they know how they can access a GP or healthcare. Those are the kind of immediate things th- people think about. And once they've had a safe place, I think what's the, the, then they start trying to deal with the emotional damage of living through what they've gone through. And that's, I think, you, where you have to make sure that you have the, the counselling services. And, and, and it, you know, of course, it would have to be in Ukrainian or Russian, depending on uh, the, 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 the first language of, of the person. But certainly making sure they're in a safe place and letting them know they're in a safe place is going to be very important when they first arrive. Okay, Tanya, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, the government is introducing legislation which will give all workers the right to paid sick leave. Introducing statutory sick leave is part of the pandemic dividend, developing a more inclusive economy and fairer society. The pandemic exposed the vulnerable position of many people, especially in the private sector, when it comes to missing work due to illness. I believe that nobody should feel that they have to go to work when they're sick because they will lose all of their income. That's not just bad for them, it's also bad for public health, as sick workers may infect colleagues, clients and customers, are more likely to make a mistake, injure themselves and do harm to others. At the moment, Ireland is one of the few advanced economies in Europe not to have a mandatory employer-funded sick pay scheme of some sort. Cyprus and Portugal are the only other EU members that do not have an employer-funded sick pay scheme or state financial supports similar to Ireland's illness benefit. All right, that's uh, the Thonish uh, Leo Bradker speaking in the Dáil last week. The Minister of State uh, for Business, Employment and Retail, Finnegal TD for Mead West, Damien English, is on uh, the line with us. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it seems odd to think uh, that people aren't entitled to be paid when they're off sick. Good morning, Michael. Thanks, thanks for having me as well. Um, I suppose, Michael, it does in the context of, of the European countries. Uh, we are an outlier here. Uh, there's only the two others, Portugal and Cyprus, that don't have a statutory sick pay scheme in place at the moment. And that's why the Tarnister, uh, when he came into this department, made it very clear that this is something he wants to address. And um, so the work on this would have began in probably November 2020. And um, so for the last year and a half, we've been working on this legislation, working on consultation to get the balance right with employers and employees. And now we have a statutory sick pay scheme being brought through the houses of the dollar because, you know, the bottom line, I suppose, to quote the town today is worth the right. Um, nobody should feel that they have to go to work, mm. um, you know, when they are sick because they can't afford to. And by putting in place a statutory sick pay scheme, it supplements the scheme that we have there for a long number of years through social protection and illness benefit scheme, but that only kicks in after three days. So this kicks in from day one. So it means you don't have to go to work because you feel you can't afford not to go to work if you are sick, mm. which is good for the employee. We believe it's good for the employer too and for their business and for their customers and for their clients. But it's also good for public health because it's, it should not be encouraged people to go to work and when they're ill because we know that kind of negative consequences on people's public health as well. So it's a positive. It's correct and something that I think we, we felt that, you know, that they need to, need to address. The tariffs is very clear and this is so am I, that we do want to improve terms and conditions uh, and it should always be worthwhile going to work and that's what we're trying to increase um, in this country. So I think okay. it's a positive development. Um, but we recognise this also put, brings pressure on businesses, especially the SME community. So we have to work with them as well in terms of business support and legislation as well to give an opt-out clause for some employers if they feel they're under pressure to do this. OK, uh, but you'll be entitled to what? Is it three days a year? 
to begin with. Yeah, so this, mm-hmm. this has been running over a number of years. So in the first year, and hopefully this year, if we get this uh, through the legislation, um, we can't assume that, but I think there's very positive um, support for it from all parties. So we expect to get it through legislation quite soon. It will kick in this year. And your first, you know, in, in the first 12 months, calendar 12 months, you have three days. And then over the next four years, that will increase to 10 days of, of, of allowable pay under the statutory pay scheme, which is about 70% per day, of, of 110 mm. euro max per day. Okay, up to 110 max. Uh, and uh, that's uh, for uh, the three days. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions has uh, some concerns about what's being proposed here uh, because this won't be made available to all workers. Uh, you need to have 13 weeks continuous service and quite a lot of workers don't have that continuous service. It's kind of, that's a normal feature of the legislation, Michael, that they would have to have a relationship already built up uh, with your employer and uh, to benefit from most of the protections under employment law. In a lot of cases, it could be six, 12 months. Many countries you know, have to be employed for over six months. And for some of the paternity leave, you have to be over 12 months. Carers leave, it's over 12 months. So we brought that back to 13 weeks, which we believe is appropriate. But we are committed to, 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 to tracking that and engaging with the unions on this. Mm. in the months ahead and certainly within the first 12 months we will keep an eye on that as well to see if it's a major issue but we don't believe it is because there are other protections in law in relation to, to fixed term contracts and short term contracts so we believe that we've got this right but we're happy to analyse that more through the debates of the Houses over the next couple of months as we bring forward the legislation as well. Mm, but there's quite a, a lot of women and low paid workers as Congress says uh, who are in jobs uh, where their service is broken. Uh, they may be working there for years but because the service is broken they won't be entitled to sick leave in the way that other people are. Yeah, but this is what, what we've said here is um, 13 weeks. And the whole aim of that is that you have developed a relationship with your employer. And yes, there's some suggestions put forward in relation to some careers um, where, there's a, where there's a natural break per year. And that's something, of course, we can analyse more. But, we, but even in those cases, people have a relationship with their employer and they are employed more than 13 weeks. The, the, the issue is normally brought up to us will be around the whole area of childcare provision uh, and the EEC scheme. So that's something that's already under under review through a Labour Court uh, JLC committee that I would have set up myself. And that's still bringing forward recommendations to us around pay and terms and conditions and sick pay and so on. So I'll let that process take its course mm. and we'll analyse that and that might be part of the solution to, to addressing this. But as I said very clearly, the Tarnish repeated in the Dáil uh, last Thursday evening that he's prepared to work on this piece of legislation with unions and, and others who are concerned as well if there's apparent gaps that we have not covered. We believe that over the last 12, 13 months, as we went through a consultation period in this, that we've covered that. And I think a 13 weeks is lower than most statutory schemes, and it's certainly lower than most countries offer as well. So we think we have this right. Mm. But we are prepared to work on that if, if we're proven wrong. All right. Uh, you're only entitled uh, to be paid if you've uh, been certified uh, unfit for work. You have to have a, a medical cert, and that will cause people problems, won't it? Well, to be honest, Michael, I, I think I do believe it would be unreasonable to introduce a legal obligation for employers to pay for sick leave without the need for a worker to produce evidence for this in the form of medical certification. So I think it's appropriate. I think it's only right. Under the, under the scheme we have at the moment, which social protection payers, social insurance fund, you also have to have a certificate for that. So I think that's a natural request. And that will be similar to, mo- to most countries that operate schemes like this. Again, we have to bear in mind here, we are, we are asking employers uh, to pay out and, and to cover the cost of up to three days and eventually 10 days of a person who might be out there, who was mm. ill and is taken. I think that's only right that that will be certified. And, and already, and, and again, that's not a mandatory right. So an, an employer, depending on the relationship with your employer, 
can decide to waive that. But we've put into legislation that is expected. There are a number of schemes out there being operated by many employers at the moment which have other arrangements in place. And still, that's still open to employers and employees to come to other arrangements. But, but what we are saying, as far as the legislation will go, you are expected to have a medical certificate, and I think that's appropriate. OK. Uh, but it, it may not be worth while looking for sick pay uh, because um, you're paid so little. The minimum uh, wage worker, apparently, Paul Murphy uh, must have had his calculator out uh, because he, he reckoned uh, that... Over the three days, you'd be entitled to be paid 171.36. But if you took a, a sick day in April, uh, one in July, and one in October, uh, you'd spend as much, if not more, on doctors because you'd have to go to the doctor three times at what 60 euro. Uh, that'd be 180 compared to the 171 euro. So um, there is no sick pay, in other words. So, so two things, Michael. As it stands today, there is no sick pay. Uh, for those three days are no cost and people very often go to the doctor anyway for treatment uh, because they're sick um, so this is bear, we have to bear that in mind but also we have to accept that this is an incremental scheme it's starting this year to move up to 10 days mm. uh, o- o- over a year and that, that is, is a substantial ask of any employer they also have to replace that person in work and pay somebody else to do the work so it will come with a cost from employers we have to also protect the employee we have to try to protect the job as well and protect employers and mm. businesses. So we believe this is a fair balance. And I think, again, the issue in relation okay, to low-pay workers... OK, but if you take that point, sorry, Minister... Mike, okay. I want to finish one last point. Just in relation to a, a, a low-pay worker, someone on the wages, that's suggested by, by Paul Murphy there, already uh, we have over 40% of the public would have access to GP medical cards, so medical card and the GMS system. And that's and a scheme that's constantly changing every budget as well. And we do have a single signal mm in the program for government that we expect to be able to roll out uh, you know, better services in relation to access to free medical care over the years as well. So that's an, an improving space. So this, this issue that he's raised will, it can be approached through the medical card scheme, not necessarily putting the cost on OK, the but there'll be people who don't have a, a medical card. Um, there, there will be, Michael. Because of the household today, income. So uh, in, in that circumstance, will that not defeat the purpose of the bill, which is to make sure, if you like, that people with COVID, for example, don't go to work and spread it? It won't, Michael, because in nearly every scenario, and even in the example you put forward there, it's practically that the costs are covered. And in fact, you know, a 60 euro, you've taken a high cost in relation to obtaining a medical care from a doctor. Um, so I expect the cost of that to be a lot less. We are working across the medical system to reduce the cost of GP and to give people greater access to services. We need to bear that in mind. Plus, this scheme begins at three days and changes over the four years up to 10 days. So I think in any one person's reasonable assessment, this scheme will be worthwhile and will achieve the aims that set out, which is to protect the employee, the employer, and our public health in general. Okay. The idea is it's three days to begin with, then it goes to five, then it goes to seven, then it goes to ten days uh, sick leave, that you'd be entitled to ten days sick leave a, a year, but that will be 2026 before that happens. Um, how is that going to happen? Uh, there's no obligation on the next government uh, to do this, is there? There's not, Michael. We have it in regulations. So the legislation, uh, it, legislation. If you if you're over prescriptive, doesn't work extremely well, and you can't react to situations. So we're putting in place legislation which brings in the statutory pay scheme and sets the level that it's at uh, as of for this year. Then it's in regulation uh, and committed to by by our government, by by this government, and with Thomas and myself in our department then to bring that change in over four years. And it's in regulations, and that, of course, is up to the then Minister of the day to bring that forward. But we've set out here a very clear roadmap that we expect successful governments to follow. 
again, the public can, can vote for different governments, that's their choice, but we believe putting in place legislation now is key to that, uh, and also putting in place the regulations, but uh, but it, it will not be in, in statutory, that, that, it's, that the timelines are set out, that's to be that's to be in, in regulations, and again, which can be a change in a positive way, and by successful governments as well, at the appropriate time. What's key here, Michael, is we have to recognise the situation for the last two and a half years for many businesses in this country. They've been under immense pressure uh, trying to keep 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 open and keep their businesses afloat. Uh, massive uh, uh, with COVID. Mm. On top of that, we've had we're now dealing with massive inflation and increased costs because of what's happening in Ukraine and other external events as well. So we have to recognise the current situation is not ideal for business owners for us to bring a scheme like this in. But we believe it's important to bring it in and get it into the, in, onto the law book and get it in place okay. and then work with the business community over a couple of years. So again, I think mm. we have the balance right in there. Okay, just to be clear for David and Navin, who's uh, texting us, he wants to know if it's the employer or the government who uh, pays uh, under this scheme. It'll be the employer who pays the sick pay, isn't it? Yes, this is a statutory yeah. sick pay scheme which uh, expects the employer to pay for the first three days on certified leave. And that's why, Michael, come back to our earlier discussion here, this has to be fair legislation, it has to be balanced for both employer and employees, and we believe we've got that balance right. But we recognise it does bring increased costs uh, on some employers. Many employers already mm. have sick pay schemes in place in, in a formal mechanism, of others course, have an ad hoc yeah. arrangement, yeah. but we recognise some don't. And this brings in a level of for everybody mm. but also there is a clause here to allow businesses who believe they can't afford to pay these levels uh, to, to be exempt okay. but they have to go through a process with the Labour Court to do that Alright I, I might just read you another text on, on a separate issue if I can Minister Paddy Duffy texting about Dr Tony Houlihan saying he's done the state a great service Paddy says uh, because of his stewardship of uh, the pandemic a hell of a lot of people are alive today who might not have been otherwise just look at his counterpart in England and the death rate there there's no way for him to end his career and Paddy says shame on the politicians and on Robert Watt has he got a point? Well, two things I would agree with, with Paddy Duffy there that he's done a great service to the country uh, for his long service in the, in the Department of Health but especially over the last couple of years in relation to COVID he worked extremely well through an effort and as advisor to the government to guide the ministers of the day and the government of the day through the last couple of years so without a doubt the decisions made in relation to COVID have saved lives I have no doubt about that and that's correct and that is well recognised and will continue to be recognised and that's why I think Dr Stoneyman was being considered for this role in training to lead up this um, professorship because I think we can value, we can gain from his uh, experience and, and his qualifications and what he can pass on to others in this field. So uh, I would be very interested to see Dr Tony in an educational role of, of some sort and that's without a doubt and nobody is denying that. The discussion around this from politicians of, of different spheres is around the process and the transparency uh, and I think that that wasn't very clear and the teacher made that very clear last Thursday. That should be looked at. There is a report due out this morning which I haven't got yet and I haven't read um, and that will show. But may, maybe hopefully we can still find a way to facilitate this this uh, this role that the Trinity and the Department of Education had discussed Dr Tony Hulham because it, it sounds like a very fitting role but it's a process of getting there. I think no one's denying his qualifications for the job. It's just how you come about that. Okay, Minister, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, today. That's uh, Damien English, uh, Fine Gael TD for Meath West and Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. Let me bring you one other comment uh, before we go to the break from Seamus Indundalk, who was listening uh, to the interview at the start of uh, the programme with Labour's Gerald Nash. 
And Seamus says he's at a loss to understand why a person living in a council house who has room can't take in a refugee. Seamus says this is shameful. I'm sure these poor people would rather that to be living in a house with somebody who's in a local authority house than to be lying on the floor of a gym or in a tent. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Seamus. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, is inviting applications to a €2 million Euro community safety innovation fund. And the Minister is on the line with us. And a very good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. This has been long talked about, hasn't it? Uh, uh, but uh, there'll be an awful lot of interest in it. And I'm sure you'll get a, a lot of applications uh, for some of uh, this funding because uh, it's a way of directing money that has. Uh, being the proceeds of crime into projects that support community safety. It is. And and look, Michael, I think this is probably one of the first things I spoke to you about after being appointed into the Department of Justice. So the the applications that people can now uh, put in is for a fund which will see proceeds of crime essentially reinvested into local projects to improve community safety. Um, It's a fund of two million, which I I really hope is an initial fund. And I hope over years that fund will increase. As you said, there will most likely be a significant interest in it. But it really does reflect the amazing success of Angarda Siakana and CAB and the work that they have done since CAB was established in seizing proceeds from criminal gangs, from their activities. I mean, these are gangs that we we only have to look uh, locally to see how they have inflicted such misery and and the the pain that they cause. So this is something that has been called for for some time. I I want to acknowledge locally Fergus O'Dowd, but also retired Chief Superintendent Chrissy Mangan, who have highlighted this issue and, and really called for this proceeds of crime to, to go back into communities. Uh, so really pleased that we're able to open the fund today. It's open until the 8th of June. Uh, people will be able to apply for projects ranging from 20,000 right up to 150,000. So obviously we'll have quite a variation of different types of projects. Um, but, you know, th- this is, as you've said, something that's been called for for some time. And I hope, again, I suppose so much of what we do, I hope it sends a signal to those involved in criminality um, that there is no escaping here and that CAB and Garda O'Connor are doing their job. But when those assets are seized, they will go directly back into the communities to make sure that people are, are safe and feel safe. OK. At 20,000 to 150,000, uh, is there a limit on the number of projects any given area uh, can uh, apply for? There isn't, no. And I mean, this is open to everyone in the country. What we're asking for is groups that are, I suppose, working on community safety specifically. So you could have everything from the community alert groups that work the length and breadth of of all of our counties to the bigger organisations. So say the the Drogheda uh, group, essentially, that has been established following on from the Vivian Gearan report. But also you have programmes like, uh, say, SMART. So last Thursday I was in Trim for the 20th anniversary of SMART, which is the South Mead Youth Diversion Project. And they work with young people, diverting them away from crime, supporting them and helping them. So it's quite a broad range of people and individuals and types of groups that can apply for this fund. And obviously what we're asking for is new types of projects. So this won't be a fund that will take the place of another fund, be it through the HSE or Justice or other types of funding. We're asking for new innovative projects, projects that haven't, been delivered before that haven't been funded through any other department and what I'd love to see come out of this is for example if, if a group in Meads uh, come up with a particular project that they feel will be good for their area that will, will support 
the, the creation of a resilient community, if it works, that it can be then reflected in other communities and other counties across the country. So we're at day one. I suppose we have a way to go, but I'm really excited to see uh, the type of projects that come in and obviously to, to get that money out and to see how it's spent. Okay. Does uh, the government's commitment to prioritise applications from the Drogheda area still stand? It does. And look, we brought, a, well, in fact, my colleague Heather Humphreys last summer brought a memo to Cabinet uh, outlining the actions uh, and the intention of uh, the Vivian Gearan report. And what was very clearly agreed was that there would be a particular focus within departments if applications came in from Drogheda uh, that they would be supported. That's not to say other counties or other community groups, either in Loud or Mead, would be excluded. But obviously, knowing the challenges um, that Drogheda has faced and, and obviously the, the intention behind this new Drogheda report and, and the action plan, there will be, you know, we will be looking to see these applications hopefully coming in and, and hopefully be able to respond favourably. This fund itself. What I hope will happen uh, in the next few years, we have three pilot programmes happening across three counties, so in Dublin, Longford and Waterford, and communities are coming together, very similar to what's happened in Drogheda. They are developing their own community safety plan based on their own, uh, I suppose, issues, based on what they feel they need in their community. And so this fund will eventually in time be available to all of those community safety groups that will uh, eventually be developed and, and will will come and sit you in, in every county. So this mm. is, as I said, an initial day, €2 million Euro fund. I very much hope to see it increase over time. But the most important thing about this is that this is proceeds of crime money being reinvested back into our community, back to improve community safety, to help tackle crime, to redirect vulnerable individuals, to, to reduce reoffending, all of the things that we need to, to help keep us safe uh, and to feel safe as well, because sometimes it's not just about being safe, it's about that feeling of, of being safe too. Mm, and you expect there to be funding in place for an indefinite period for years to come uh, because it's one thing uh, making an application and if the application is successful for whether it's 20,000 or 150,000 euro, people will be asking themselves, well, that's all well and good, but what do we do the following year when that money is already spent? So what we're looking for is not necessarily um, a project that will then require funding on an annual basis. So you have already um, funding streams through my own department. So you have the Victims of Crime funding, which I announced only two weeks ago. You have funding through HSE and they deliver, um, I suppose, particular places within organisations that need that annual funding. What we're asking for here are once-off projects that will get something up and running and off the ground that will need that initial fund um, and then there are other streams of funding that will help to keep it going. So uh, I suppose the two million initially, we'll have to see how many people apply, but as that fund increases, it allows for more uh, ideas, new innovative ideas, mm. and hopefully ideas, as I said, that we can replicate across the country if they work. And if funding is needed for staff or if funding is needed to keep a project going, then there are other funding streams there available either to my own department or other departments as well um, that will be available to help in that way. Okay, and applications can be made uh, through the department's uh, website. Uh, I'm sure that uh, there will be a a lot of interest and we'll all be watching with interest uh, what the applications are for because as you say, Minister, if uh, there's great ideas and innovative ideas uh, that make our communities safer, perhaps they'll be replicated and duplicated uh, across the country and it'll make life uh, a lot better for all of us. 
Uh, before we leave uh, you this morning, Minister, can I also ask you uh, uh, about how Dr Tony Houlihan's public service is about to end? Uh, I think uh, most people would look on uh, the CMO as an exceptional public servant uh, and are wondering why this would happen. Earlier in the programme, Labour's Jed Nash said it's the fault of the politicians and government must take responsibility. What do you say to that? Well, firstly, if I could just echo what my, my colleague Damien English said before I came on. I mean, I think Tony Hullahan has done an unbelievable service for this country. He has undoubtedly saved lives and I think we will all um, be forever grateful for the time that he has given away from his family and, and the significant sacrifice that he has made. I think, well, I suppose what I'd like to see is the report, um, I believe, Robert Watt is the, the Secretary General of the Department of Health is going to be giving that to the Minister today, Stephen Donnelly. And um, without seeing all of the details, it's very hard to comment. But unfortunately, we seem to have had pieces of information come out over the last week. And I do think it's a pity and I, I do regret the fact that he is now not taking up this position in Trinity. I think somebody of his stature and somebody of his experience, they are the type of people we want to take on these roles and, and to be in our universities. So I do think it is a shame. Um, but I'd like to see... Uh, what is in that report and and maybe I'd be able to to comment further. Okay, Minister, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Uh, That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Fine Gael TD. For me, these Tele McEntee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Ireland's ambassadors, permanent representatives and consuls general will gather in Dublin Castle this Thursday for the Global Ireland Summit. We're going to speak now to Ireland's ambassador to the Netherlands, Brendan Rogers, who's on the line. And uh, very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure there's a, a lot of uh, local people who'd be very interested to hear from you, apart from anything else. Brendan, a, a native of Carlingford and uh, somebody who went to school in Dundalk, I believe. Yes, Michael, it's great to be on my on my local radio show. Uh, I was born in Drogheda, of course, like so many people in County Loud, but uh, brought up in Dundalk, living in Carlingford now. And uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I've listened to you. Thanks a million for having me on. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, this is the first such summit uh, in a couple of years, isn't it, because of COVID? Yeah, well, we've been all closed off, as you know. So this is a real opportunity for most of our ambassadors to come home and kind of reconnect, uh, strategize to ensure that we uh, we get out there running as quickly as we can, reconnect with the world. Um, I mean, the, the, the actual aim of the Global Ireland strategy is to double Ireland's influence uh, over the world between uh, 2020 and 2025. So it's a, it's a very ambitious <laughs> agenda, but we need to get out there and do it and talk to each other uh, on Thursday, get back uh, to our, our missions and our embassies and... Um, get down to the work really essentially okay and tell us a, a little bit about the work because i'm not sure that many of us really understand the work of a, a, an ambassador on behalf of this country <laughs> obviously you fly the flag and you attend a, a, a lot of functions and uh, you talk up the country uh, but how do you uh, hope to go a, a, about wielding that influence that you talked about no, thanks Mike. actually you know what i say sometimes when i'm speaking abroad that I might be the ambassador in name, but actually all our ambassadors are all of our Irish people and our Irish communities all over the world who are mini ambassadors, essentially. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's a, sometimes it's a very mysterious world and people think that you're going to receptions and sipping wine, etc. But actually, it's an everyday job. There's lots to do. Essentially, we, we have to look after our people, our communities abroad. We've got to promote our culture. We've got to promote our prosperity because if you bear in mind that 
We have an average per capita income in Ireland of around €70,000 per head. And with a, with a population of 5 million, you just can't do that with a local market. So we have got to sell our, our goods abroad. We've got to attract foreign direct investment. We've got to attract tourism and tourists. We've got to attract students. So we're very much on, on the front line of that work. And also, we have to work very hard with our semi-state agencies as well, like Bordia, the IDA, EI, Culture Ireland. We're out there as it were on, on the front line. And every day, you know, we're meeting, uh, we're meeting companies who may want to invest in Ireland. We're meeting companies that may want to buy Irish goods and services. We get out there, we, we talk to them, we build relationships with them. On top of that, of course, we also have to look after our Irish community and visitors. I, of course, I'm ambassador in, in the Netherlands and many, many Irish people go there on holidays for weekends, for breaks. And generally, it's very, very, a very happy experience. But occasionally there are accidents or people get into trouble. And we need to ensure that we look after their welfare when we do that. We also uh, assist in issuing passports and in issuing visas as well. And then there's the promotion of culture. For example, um, in The Hague at the moment, we've got a couple of uh, students from Dundalk who are studying there, studying mm. the harp and studying music. And we assist them and we promote them as well. And on our virtual St. Patrick's Day reception, which we, we broadcast to Ireland just a couple of weeks ago, we had some of some of those artists uh, performing as well. Mm. And then, of course, uh, Michael, we're, we're in the EU. The Netherlands is a really key partner for us now with Britain leaving. So we've got to kind of ensure that those bridges are built into the Netherlands as well. Okay, and the diplomatic channels uh, are always important. We've been hearing a lot about the importance of uh, the diplomatic channels with Russia, obviously, over the last few weeks. Uh, uh, are you in contact with the embassy there? Have you any thoughts uh, about the expulsions for that matter? Well, uh, I, although I'm ambassador to the Netherlands, I'm also a representative to the International Criminal Court, uh, Michael. And as you know, we've been very, very active in ensuring that the, the court can now investigate some of the allegations of, of, of war crimes uh, and activity like that. That work has to be carried out now over the coming period. And, and we have contributed, the Irish government has contributed about 150,000 to that work. Diplomatic channels are very, very important. You've got to keep talking to people, even if you're not getting on with them. Um, even if those conversations are very, very tough, and some of those conversations out there in the Netherlands, both at the ICC and another organisation called the OPCW, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, those those conversations are tough, uh, but they have to be had. But you have to keep those ca- the channels open as well, so that you can engage and speak to somebody. Okay. Uh, what is um, the situation in Moscow at uh, the moment? Uh, we've had uh, some staff uh, expelled, haven't we? Uh, and I'm sure there's the hope that we can continue to have a presence there for those Irish people who are, are resident in Russia. Yes, Michael, we just had two of our important diplomatic staff um, expelled or in the process of being expelled, which is a third of the of, of our cohort there and obviously we want to look after our community and those channels of communication are very very important uh, we're not involved in any uh, activities that would not be concordant with our international diplomatic obligations so we're very very dis- disappointed that the minister stated that very clearly uh, recently as as well but i know our staff there are going to do their very very best to ensure that we can keep you know the work going as much as possible okay and what about war crimes do you believe uh, it will, in time, be possible to make people accountable. 
Well, I know that the prosecutor in the International Criminal Court, Prosecutor Khan, is very active in that, in that area. He's been speaking to both uh, heads of mission in, in The Hague and in other places as well. And what's very, very important now is the work, the forensic analysis, and all of the follow-up work is carried out very diligently to, uh, to bring together all of the evidence and cooperate it and coordinate it so that he can move forward and then look at the uh, opportunities to follow up in relation to uh, other war crimes. Yes. Okay, I'm yeah, just uh, not sure, though, that uh, there'd be any great expectation at this stage that anybody would actually be in the dock and held to account. Yeah, no, it's true. But I, mm. I have been at some of the court cases. Michael, I was at one just two or three uh, weeks ago in relation to Uganda. And I know when mm. I was ambassador to Uganda at one point um, during the Lord's Resistance Army and people said at the time, oh, you'll never, we'll never get those people to the court. And I... Yeah. I just saw the appeal for one, so yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah and uh, I think uh, in recent times we remember saying the same thing about Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, yeah. you, you, you also played a, an important role, I understand, in securing Ireland's seat on the UN Security Council. And of course, uh, we'd hope to have influence uh, in terms of what's happening in the world, not just in Russia as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, we, we sit on the Security Council, Michael, approximately once every 20 years it's it's quite a it's quite a job to get elected you must get the uh, the votes of two-thirds of the members of the, the UN um, general assembly uh, we worked very very hard we we announced that we were going for that particular role in 2005 so it took 15 years <laughs> i came back home about uh, 5 years ago from bangkok where i was ambassador and we you know, we had a very intensive campaign for, for those three years and we got the votes and uh, we're on the council. I mean, look, it, people are quite critical mm. of the council in many respects now because they feel that it's, it's, it's uh, not getting the work done and there's a lot of conflict on it. But at the same time, it's really, really important to be there and to, to make our voices heard and to follow up our values. And there's a lot of good work done that you don't see always on the surface as well. Okay. Were you disappointed that the success of winning the seat was mired in controversy? Well, look, we're always disappointed. We, of course, were disappointed at that. But look, there was a, there was a very thorough review and, um, you know, lessons were learned. We had to move on from that. Mm. At the same time, every day, our teams out there, and by the way, our ambassador to the United Nations Security Council is a, a lady from Drogheda. Uh, Geraldine yep. Nation. Mm, yep. So uh, I think it's, it's very good for the wee county that we have uh, one ambassador in The Hague, ambassador to the ICC, and the other ambassador from Drogheda to the Security Council as well. Mm. It's good to see the wee county well represented. People will know your face from that now infamous uh, photograph uh, in uh, the front row uh, of uh, the staff behind Mr. Burgess holding a, a glass of sh- champagne. Do you, do you regret that yourself personally? Of course, yes. I mean, look, it, it was three or four minutes. We're all in a room and uh, we, we won the seat and we shouldn't have done that. And we apologised. It was very, very quickly. Uh, we, everybody moved on. That was it. But look, yeah, you have to take responsibility and apologise. OK. And what about uh, the spend that uh, was involved in this? Uh, I remember seeing a headline, four and a half thousand euro was spent on novelty socks. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, quite frankly, you have to spend some money because you've got to ensure that you get on the seat. The, the novelty socks were simply socks with uh, Vote for Ireland was on that. It, it, like, it's kind of you, you need to do this. It, it, it is like an election campaign, but the, winning the seat is hugely important in terms of our values, in terms of the influence that we can have, in terms of the good that we can do. 
And, and we're doing that actually every day. Every day I, I'm, we're speaking to the teams in relation to humanitarian corridors in Syria, in relation to other mandates that the UN have all over the world. Okay. That's really, really important for us, I think, as a small nation. All right. Well, as you say, from uh, The Hague to Carlingford, where you're living now, born in Drada, went to school in Dundalk. Uh, you're a very uh, local ambassador, uh, but Ireland's ambassador to the Netherlands. And it's good to talk to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Brendan Rogers. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Everybody's feeling the pinch and obviously those who feel the pinch more than others most of the time are feeling it all the more so. Let's speak uh, to Karen Kiernan, Chief Executive Officer of One Family, which represents single parent families. Good morning to you, Karen. Thanks indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, the cost of living is soaring uh, and uh, I think uh, it's probably impossible for anybody to forecast what's going to happen in terms of inflation because there's so much uncertainty. But as things stand, uh, the people you represent, single parent families, are finding it very difficult, apparently. Really, really difficult, yeah. I mean, I think most families out there on low incomes or fixed incomes uh, know that this has been a difficult few years, actually. Um, And for many people parenting on their own, um, they have been on lower incomes just for decades. That's that's the way it is in Ireland, unfortunately. Mm. But the effect of COVID and now the effect of the cost of inflation increases on basic things like energy, um, like electricity, like bread, um, is really hitting people hard who have children um, who are working but on low incomes um, and relying to some degree perhaps on state support to make them meet ends, mm. ends meet. It's really difficult and they're having to face impossible choices about what to pay for it to keep themselves going on a week-to-week and day-to-day basis. Is there any way around it? Well, look, everyone is facing, and it's a global issue now mm. in terms of, of energy because of the war in Ukraine. But I suppose one of the things that analysts have been saying is that people on lower incomes are paying more proportionately than other people. They don't have a buffer. They have to get essentials, and that's where the costs are being driven up. So we have to try and protect vulnerable children, vulnerable families, through giving them additional supports in these coming months to help them get through this crisis. Mm. And I suppose for us in one family, we're looking at what the government did in January with the €200 for every bill holder, and we're thinking, look, that's not the way to go. You know, I'm lucky I didn't need that money, Mm. but there are lots of families who need that and more just to either buy enough food for the week to be able to heat their home, to keep a roof over their heads. So let's use targeted measures. So mm. if the government could target people who really need it, and that is easily done through the social welfare system, because we know who the people are who are already on low income. Yeah, and maybe we give people 300 euro, are. rather than uh, giving people 200 euro when they don't need it. Uh, the uh, three uh, leaders of uh, the coalition parties are meeting uh, with uh, the finance and public expenditure minister today, and uh, hopefully they'll uh, come forward uh, with more ways of helping people to cope. But is it a question of eat or heat? I mean, when you talk uh, about impossible decisions, are they the kind of decisions that people are having to make? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I can tell you that that is what parents are having to face. So many parents, maybe they're not eating or they're relying on their children getting fed in schools or youth clubs or early years centres because they just don't have enough money to pay for basic food. They don't have enough money 
to heat their homes. And for many parents who we're working with, a lot of them are living in the private rented sector if they're not in homeless accommodation. And they're having to prioritise keeping a roof over their head because they're afraid of being, you know, let go out of their private rented um, flat or house. And that's just too great a risk. So people are maybe getting behind getting in arrears on electricity or um, gas because they're prioritising their rent. Now, if if that continues, there's a possibility that they may end up being um, cut off. And that's really worrying. We know St. Vincent de Paul are having to pick up the slack on some of this and pay for bills because they see people. And they're saying, and we're saying in one family, if the government can have a hardship fund so that people who are in difficulty and real difficulty can get some support, then that would be helpful. But there just needs to be something extra targeted to people in the coming months to help them get through, because this is an emergency. Mm. Like People have been living in poverty for years and years and years, and we've all let that happen. And children have been affected, and this is not the kind of country that we want. We're mm. a generous country. And really what we need to do is make sure that people don't have to go hungry so that they can have the light on at night, mm. you know, so their children can do their homework, because that is the kind of thing that people are having to face today. And, uh, and I take it if people enough. are, sorry, Karen, I take it if people are in that situation, they're uh, having to do things that maybe aren't obvious that we can't see, like having the sky uh, cut off or broadband cut off or, or, or uh, go without anything that could be described as a luxury. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, those things aren't essential anymore for many families because they just can't afford it. And I'm talking about a lot of families who are working here as well, Mm -hmm. who are on low incomes and who, because of the price of childcare or, um, you know, the price of accommodation in Ireland, they're already, uh, you know, paying top-ups or they're already Mm. at the pin of their collar in terms of making things meet. So, you know, bread going up, pasta going up, Mm. petrol going up, all of those things are just... Crucified. Yeah, well, we're getting to a stage uh, where heating your home uh, may be considered by some to be a luxury. Yes, unfortunately it is. And for many people who, depending on where they live, whether they're on a, an, a gas supply or whether they've got prepay meters, which are more expensive, so they can't necessarily shop around or avail of bargains. Because, you know, what some people don't realise, if you're on a lower income, you can't necessarily control what heating you have if you're on in-rented accommodation. Mm. And if, the, if, the, um, if your house isn't well insulated, that's, you know, the landlord doesn't have to do that. And yet you're paying to make up for that lack of insulation. So for people who don't have choice, they're having to pay more. You know, for people who can't travel and bulk buy, for people who can't shop around for their fuel, they're having to pay more, as well as being on a lower income and paying a lot more in VAT and tax. So it's, it's very much stacked against people on low incomes. And that's why we have to help low-income families, because we know that most children living in poverty, unfortunately, are living with one parent, Mm. and those parents are really struggling. They have been struggling, and now it's much, much worse. And they're just horrible choices to have to make if you're a parent about Mm. what you can afford to do. And certainly, kids are not going on school tours, they're not going to kids' parties. You know, they're not doing any of those uh, things that children need to be included in their friendship groups. So it's a real case of children being excluded as well. Yeah, well... Uh, there's a lot of people uh, who are so well off because as you say we're a very rich country uh, that they don't understand what this conversation is even about and therein lies an ironic situation uh, one uh, a case if you like of haves and have nots very much so and you're dead right on paper we're a very rich country and a lot of that wealth is tied up in property and that means Mm. 
that people who don't have property are paying huge rents and are paying, having huge difficulty, as we know, in having a roof over their head, which is one of the most basic things. A lot of the families we work with um, in one family, their addresses might be hotel rooms, mm. you know, or they're a hostel or a hub, something like that. And they're trying to get on with their lives. Mm. Um, but it's really, really difficult to do that when you're so stressed about where you're going to live because okay. it's kind of the most fundamental thing. So it, it, it really affects people's mental health. It affects their ability to make decisions um, you know, to move on in their lives, to get an education, to do those things that, you know, an average family or parent might want to do. It's mm. it's just very, very stressful for people. Yeah. And COVID really impacted that as well. Yeah, well, they're all rudimental things, fundamental to being alive uh, in a lot of respects. One family is there uh, to support single parent families uh, and uh, you have a helpline uh, which you might give uh, to people if uh, that's okay, Karen. Yeah, um, people can get us on Dublin um, 01662 9212 or 0818662212. We're also on Facebook. There's a lot of information on our website, onefamily.ie. So for people who are parenting on their own or sharing parenting of their children or going through separation, um, we're here at the end of the phone or an email to help. Okay. We leave it there for the moment. Those details available uh, to our listeners from the radio station if uh, they didn't get a chance to write it down, they can contact us and we can give you the contact details. But uh, of course, one family uh, you'll find very easily on the internet for that matter. Karen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. Karen Kieran is uh, the CEO of One Family. Now, before we leave you today, let me just uh, bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have uh, been coming to us uh, this morning and uh, a text uh, that comes to us uh, from Mick and Kells, who says he worked for over 40 years uh, and he says uh, that at the end of the day, no matter how good you are, there's always somebody looking over your shoulder for your job. Uh, You're only a a number, he says, uh, which is uh, a very... Uh, tragic thing to be saying after a, a lifetime working like that, Mick. Uh, I'm not sure what your experience was, uh, but sorry to hear that. Uh, another call that comes to us from Raid and Drada, who says it's about time that all employees were given the entitlement of sick pay. It's only fair when you're not well to uh, go to work, especially when you work hard all the year round. It's normally low-paid workers who don't get sick pay. Those in higher wages get all of the perks, she says. Uh, Unfortunately, that's too true. But thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts with us as well, Mairead. Paddy Duffy in touch with us. Uh, I'm not sure, Paddy, what happened to you. Was it a a mobility scooter? Uh, Thanks uh, for the text, as always. He says he was at an ATM on Sunday morning uh, just before 8 o'clock in the morning and he says what shot past on the footpath is only what I would call an electric scooter but not one you stand up on. He was seated and no higher than three and a half foot from the ground. I, I didn't hear him coming. Scared the hell out of me. Where the hell has this contraption come from? They're going to be more deadly than the stand-up ones if that's possible because if you're not looking down, you've no chance of seeing them. It's time for the current road traffic legislation to be used and God knows there's plenty in it to deal with this menace. It should be a homegrown modification of lowering the handlebars and attaching a bicycle saddle. I don't know, just a thought, says Paddy Duffy. Well, we leave it with that thought for today. Thanks indeed for sharing it with us. That's our programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next one tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. michael at lmfm.ie
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.